you have your Bibles this morning, please join me in 1 John. We will be taking as our text this morning, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 through 21. Here's the context. John was the last one, and they were scared out of their minds. The Apostle John, at the time of writing this epistle, most likely to the church found in Ephesus at the time, was probably in his 80s or 90s. And he was the last living apostle. In fact, I think I mentioned this before in John chapter 21, on breakfast on the beach at the restoration of Peter, John is trailing behind Jesus and Peter, and Peter, referring to John, says, what about this guy? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I come, what is that to you? And so there was a rumor in the first century church that John was never going to die until Jesus came back. Now we know that Jesus is probably referring to the revelation that John received when he did die, called the book of Revelation, but he was the last living apostle. He was the only one who died of natural causes. Uh, And he was dying. He was old. And his followers, his listeners, his parishioners, his fellow churchgoers, were scared out of their minds because he was their last living link with Jesus. You see, for first century believers, it was normal to know a guy who knew a guy who knew Jesus. The the message that you believed was validated by somebody who knew Jesus. John was the disciple that self-referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, as was common during the Last Supper, as they're eating, reclined at the table, leaning on their left arms with their legs extended out away from the table in a reclining position on cushions, it was John who literally leaned back onto the breast or the chest of Jesus to say, Who is it, Lord? They were close, intimate friends. And he was dying. He, he was going to be dead sooner rather than later. And his church was freaking out. He was their greatest link, their greatest source, who actually knew Jesus, who actually gave them a sense of assurance that their gospel was true. In moments of fear, they could turn to John and say, tell us again what Jesus actually told you. And John could share the story. He wasn't going to be around forever. And his church was afraid. They were scared. They were going to be on their own. And they didn't know if they were going to have the same level of assurance regarding their own decisions of faith that they could currently have by simply pulling up a chair or reclining on a cushion next to John and saying, tell us again about the time when Jesus said whatever. Can you imagine how assuring that would be to your faith if you could simply set up a time to talk with someone who was actually discipled by Jesus? Like, how would that make you feel about your faith? And how would it make you feel if all of a sudden you didn't have that resource anymore? You would feel alone. You would feel abandoned. And so John needs to help his people understand how they can know that they can know that they can know that they have a relationship with Jesus, that he is alive and coming back for his church, even though all of his disciples, all of his 12 apostles were dead. We pick up the text in 1 John chapter 4, beginning verse 13. This is how we know that we remain in him, in Jesus, and he in us. He has given assurance to us from his spirit. Please notice, he did not say he gave us apostles from his spirit. Well, he did, but that was not where their assurance was based. Their assurance was based on 
something that John is referring to as the Spirit, we know as the Holy Spirit, that God gives of himself so that we may know that we belong to him, that he is in us, and that we are in him. Here is the first big idea that John needed his listeners to understand, that when it comes to matters of faith, assurance is relational, not transactional. That assurance is relational, not transactional. Your mommy does not love you because there is a birth certificate that says she has to. You probably don't even know where your birth certificate is. Ours, like all good New Englanders, is in the freezer where it belongs. Everybody knows that's an important document to live. I'll tell you why later if you're interested. Your mom doesn't love you because there's a piece of paper that says she has to. That you were so many pounds on this day, you were born at this time, and blah, blah, blah. The relationship that you have with your mom, the reason that you love your mom and your mom loves you is because it's relational. There is a history of being raised and loved by her that has nothing to do with a document. It is not a transactional relationship. The confidence that you have in your mother's love has nothing to do with a birth certificate. It's not transactional. It's relational. All of our most important relationships, we have assurance of them, not because we have a wedding certificate. That's not what motivates us to be a good husband or a spouse. You have to love me because you have a wedding certificate. Try that one out and see how it goes. That, that relationship has nothing to do with the transactional aspects that made it legal. It has everything to do with the relational aspects that made it right. And so assurance in our relationship with God is relational. Uh, when it comes to this project of 32 School Street, are we looking for guys who can write up a good contract? Absolutely. What are we looking for first? Guys we can trust. Guys that come highly recommended. Guys who have a history or a relationship with either someone that we know in the church or someone knows who, someone who knows someone in the church. Those are the contractors we're looking to do business with, even if it costs us a little bit more. We have to get the job done at a certain time in a certain way on a certain day because we have other guys that trust us that are taking their vacations and partner with us during very specific pieces of time. We have got to work with contractors that when they say they will be at a certain place at a certain time, we trust them. Well, how do we do that? We know them, or they know us, or we know somebody who knows them. Then we'll talk about the piece of paper, right? It's important to have the piece of paper. I get it. There is a transactional aspect to this project, but the first step is relational. Assurance always comes through relationship, not because there was a transaction. First thing that John needs his listeners to feel confident about. Let us love, uh, we know that we remain in him, and he in us, he has given us assurance to us from his spirit. Our, our, our confidence that God is present in our lives, and that we are present in his life, has nothing to do with a baptismal certificate or a certificate of ordination, or a certificate of confirmation. All important documents, all important transactions, all very meaningful. None of them give us the assurance of a relationship with God like actually having a relationship with God. The greatest assurance always comes relationally, not transactionally. And our greatest assurance comes from a personal relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ that is evident of the Holy Spirit working in each believer, not a piece of paper. So this is where John begins his conversation. I am going to die at some point. Your last physical living 
tangible link to the actual Jesus will not be here, and it will be okay because you have a better link. You have the Holy Spirit of Jesus himself living inside of you. It'll be okay when the old man dies. The power of your faith was never centered in the old man anyways. It's always been centered in the work of the Holy Spirit in your life through a relationship with Jesus. Going on in the text. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. I'm sorry, I'm preaching at this for the last week. Sorry, continuing to verse 14. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. But how do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit is the greatest evidence or the greatest assurance that I can have, that I'm on track with God and God is living inside of me, uh, how do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? It comes down to a word of confession, a decision of faith that is actually stated in a confessional type way. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. This is why John's followers were so frightened. That is completely different than what religion looked like in the first century church. The cultural norm in the first century church regarding religion, pagan religion, what people thought was normal, when you said that you had a relationship with an entity or a deity or a higher being, the cultural norm was that it was a transactional relationship that was evidence-based because you had been to the temple so many times in the past month, that you were there on certain days, that you had given money at a certain level, and that had earned you spiritual privileges or access to religious people or possibly levels of knowledge that was not available for free, that you had done your grocery shopping at the local market, which was sponsored by or sourced by the sacrifices which were made at the temple. You could prove that you were a religious person, that you had a higher entity in your life, that you were faithful, that you were spiritual because you bought your groceries from a certain market, which had sacrificed the products to a certain entity. It was trans- You could show the receipts. I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. This was the norm in the first century church. You, you, you possibly had an idol or a shrine in your house that you had paid for. You paid a carpenter or a metalsmith to cast an image and to cover it with precious metals and possibly decorate it with jewels. And you set up a little special area in your house so you could prove that you're a religious person. I have a relationship with a spiritual entity because I've been to the temple so many times. I did my grocery shopping at the local market where they buy it, where they use the sacrifices from that temple. I had an idol based in my house, and everybody, and I gave a certain amount of money, which gave me certain access to certain people and certain knowledge. And I know that if I don't do those things, I'm in trouble. It was a fear-based religion, based off of transactions. That was the cultural norm. The gospel of Jesus was a relational experience, completely different. And this is why it was easy for John's listeners to be scared, because their key relational connection was about to die. But for Christianity, the, the norm was relational, as is evidenced in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The apostles met together regularly for the breaking of the bread, reading of the disciples' teaching for prayer, and for communion. And, and, they, and they gathered regularly in each other's homes. They weren't regularly attending a temple. They were regularly visiting each other's homes and sharing meals together. That was normal for Christianity, a relational experience. Spiritual privileges in the first century church were linked to obedience, prayer, and calling. 
fact, we find people in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, Ananias and Sapphira, who tried to buy privilege in the first century church, being judged immediately by God. The spiritual privilege in the first century church was because God had called you in a certain way to serve, and you were obedient to that calling. You didn't buy access to God or, or leadership privileges. Totally different from the first century culture. The teaching regarding the temple is that your body was the temple. That, that the deity, through the power of the Holy Spirit, lived inside those who made a confession of faith. You didn't go somewhere to experience God. You made a confession and God came and dwelt in you. You don't take care of a building because God lives there. You take care of your body because God lives there. Relational. Completely different. It was a love-based relationship, not a fear-based relationship. And so we see from 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, that assurance comes with confession. Assurance is relational. It's not transactional. And assurance comes with confession. How do I enter into this relationship? Who do I pay? Where do I go? What do I eat? What do I put in my house? None of that. What do you believe? What are you willing to stand up and acknowledge? What are you willing to stand up and confess? And John says here, and we have come uh, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God remains in him and he in God. Assurance comes with confession. Don't be worried about your relational connection getting old and dying at some point. Your faith is never based on him anyways. It's your own personal relationship where worship takes place, where two or three are gathered, where spiritual privileges are linked to obedience and calling, not money, and where your body is the temple. This is what John is trying to encourage his, his people with. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, continuing in the text. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. John is making the case that love is evidence of assurance. That you know that God has remained in you because of the love that we can experience from God. John goes on to talk about fear, some of the most powerful verses in the New Testament about fear. And what we're it's important to define this term before we read these verses because I don't want you to get the wrong interpretation. There is an aspect where the fear of the Lord is important, and by that, the scripture means that we are to re respect the Lord. Uh, we're supposed to respect God and his authority the same way we, we respect electricity. We, we love having electricity, we love having lights, we love having toast, we love having the things that electricity is possible, but we do not stick forks into power outlets because we fear it. So we're, we're, we fear electricity because we respect it, because we know it's powerful, but it doesn't mean we don't use it. And then there's also an irrational fear, a fear where we decide we're just going to be Amish because we're so afraid of electricity we couldn't possibly power up anything in our home. That's the kind of fear that this passage is talking about. This passage is not regarding fear as respect, which we know we need to have for God. He's the most powerful entity you can possibly imagine. You don't stick your fork in the power outlet of God. Things will not go well for you. Uh, but we don't fear him in an irrational way because that strikes at the heart of our relationship. 
John says it better than me. Let's just read it. In this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. For we are as he is in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. John wants his first century church parishioners to have 100% confidence or assurance in their relationship with Jesus Christ that came through confession as evidenced by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he knew that if their lives were controlled by fear and were always looking over their shoulder, wondering if they were missing something in their relationship with Jesus, that it wouldn't take the nature that it needs to, that it wouldn't grow in a healthy way. And so he addresses fear directly because here, here's the biblical approach to fear, to, to things that frighten us. We are afraid that we're going to lose something that we need. And so for guys, sometimes the thing that we're afraid of the most is uh, losing a sense of respect in the community or a sense of pride, losing the opinion of people that were capable, that were hardworking, that were honorable. We're very, we're very motivated by that, and that can be a positive thing, but sometimes it can be a fearful thing as well and cause us to neglect our families because our reputation in the community is more important to us uh, and we're afraid that we'll lose it. And, and everyone has something that makes us fearful at different times. This is what faith asks us to do. Fear says, I'm going to lose something that I need. And faith asks us to give that to Jesus. Fear says, faith says, to address what it is that frightens us and to hand that fear or that concern over by faith to Jesus. Because assurance comes when faith overcomes fear. This is what John is saying. You'll have, if you're fearful, you're not going to have any assurance of your salvation. But if you're not fearful of impending judgment, if you're moving inside the kingdom of God with confidence, like a child moves inside of their house under loving parenting, then you'll be just fine. Assurance comes when faith overcomes fear. How is fear manifested in, in our lives? With our children, it's a little bit easier because there's less filters, and so it's pretty easy to see something that frightens them or makes them fearful. For adults, it's a little bit more nuanced. Uh, if you remember what we talked about almost a year ago now with our personalities and our natures and our temperaments, some, some of us who are uh, relationally motivated, the yellows, um, the people who, who live for relationships, people who are experiencing fear better, uh, those kind of folks often will mask their fear by telling a joke or laughing it off, um, by being too relational, by being too gregarious, by being too funny. Uh, so that's, that, that can be a manifestation of fear. We're overcompensating by trying to rely on our strengths, which are relational. For those of us who are the green or the melancholic temperament, uh, we're compromisers. We'll try to compromise our way out of situations that make us fearful. For those of us who are red or choleric, uh, when we're afraid of something, we beat it with a stick. Um, 
go away? We're talking new paint job lessons? <laughs> go red. Beat it with a stick. Um, for those of us who are blue, Autumn Gardner, well, just because you gave it, come on, then you're doing it. Who cares? It just did well. So fear isn't always like a horrible, yeah, screaming and yelling. It can be too many jokes. John Marinos jokes, as in George. Goofiness. Ryan Wolf. It can be compromise and negotiation, if you're wired that way. It can be beating with a stick. Or it can also be just disengaging, going away and going to your safe place. So the final question that I'd like to answer this morning from the biblical text is, what does it look like when assurance overcomes fear with faith? Is there a place in the Bible where we can see this modeled for us? What does it look like when perfect love drives out fear? There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. What does it look like when perfect love drives out fear? And for, I think, one of the clearest pictures, the most beautiful pictures of what it looks like when perfect love drives out fear can be found in the book of Isaiah. I do not have these verses on the screen, but if you'd like to turn there, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 16 through 21, and, and just read along with me or listen as I feel that this is a biblical description of what it looks like when perfect love comes to the rescue, when perfect love drives out fear. John is describing the new normal in the first century church. It's not a fear-based religion, it's a love-based relationship. And it's pinned on a personal confession of faith in Jesus Christ as evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. How is this possible? What does it look like when perfect love drives out fear? The words of Isaiah. The Lord saw that there was no justice, and he was offended. He saw that there was no man. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. So his own arm brought salvation, and his own righteousness supported him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. It's a beautiful picture of what it looks like when God goes to war. When the Lord says, enough is enough. There is no one standing up. It's time for me to stand. This is a beautiful picture of what it looks like when love conquers fear. The Lord at war. So he will repay according to their deeds, fury to his enemies, retribution to his foes, and he will repay the coastlands places of wealth. Verse 19, they will fear the name of Yahweh in the west and his glory in the east, for he will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of the Lord. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions. How do you unleash the power of the Lord, perfect love to drive out fear? Those who turn from transgression unleash our warrior God. You're like, that imagery is so familiar. It's like Isaiah was reading out of a cage. 
Paul uses chapter 6. Other way around, people. Yes, was Paul inspired by the armor of a first century Roman soldier? Probably. But 500 years before Paul wrote that passage called the armor of God, Isaiah describes God in the same terms. He says this is what it looks like when his perfect love casts out fear. What it looks like when the Lord goes to war. You understand that picture of armor in Ephesians chapter 6 is a Christian modeling himself not after a first century soldier, but after perfect love. After the God who will go to war to cast out fear. It's not a Pauline idea. It's a God idea found in How do you activate this warrior God? How do you activate this kind of power that won't take no for an answer? The confession of faith. Turn from transgression. This is the Lord's declaration. Then watch what happens in the text. As soon as this declaration of faith is made, that confession is made, I will turn from my sin and I will follow after God. God goes on the warpath. Perfect love casts out fear. And here's how you know that perfect love has been fighting for you and has cast fear out. As for me, this is still Isaiah, the next verse, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, who is on me, and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your children or from the mouth of your children's children from now on and forever, says the Lord. Who teaches clearly in the New Testament that the power of the Spirit is the greatest assurance of faith you can ever have? John, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, going through verse 19. Where does he get that from? Isaiah. The permanent indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit as a direct result of our warrior God casting out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Where does that idea come from? It comes from God himself in his inspired text as it's used and displayed in the book of Isaiah. You see, what does it look like when perfect love casts out fear? It looks like that the church lives in occupied territory, conquered territory, where the Lord has won a victory. And the proof that the Lord has been through there and conquered the land and impressed his kingdom in a powerful way are people who are filled by his spirit. That's how you know the Lord won a victory there. The New Testament church. John says it has nothing to do with how many times you go to a magical building and pay money to talk to the magical guy to read the magical book, to buy the magical food at the magical market, and to have the little statue in your house that's supposed to be magical. None of that has any power at all. You know where assurance comes from? It comes from a commitment of faith. It comes from understanding that we live in conquered territory, that with that confession, we activate a warrior God, we activate perfect love who conquers fear. And so this morning, it's possible that maybe you've been living a life that has been defined by your fears. You're, you're worried about how your kids are going to turn out, you're worried about tax season coming up, you're worried about whether or not you're going to have a job, you're stressed out about who knows what. And this message of peace, this message of safety, this message of assurance resonates with you. I would encourage you to go back to the text this morning and understand that assurance, peace, is relational. It's not transactional. There's no amount of money we can spend that 
can guarantee an assurance uh, like the one that the text is talking about. That assurance comes with confession. And that assurance comes when our faith is overcome with fear based on the fact that it's not us getting the victory in our lives in some area. It's the fact that God has already won the victory and we can be confident in that and relax with the presence of His Spirit. And it would sound like a prayer like this. This, this confession of faith this desire for assurance of faith would sound something like this. Heavenly Father, I've been living in a fear-based religion where I'm trying to do things that keep an angry God happy. But this morning I realized that the angry God is upset because I'm far from Him. And that He will go to war on my behalf. That He will conquer fear. That perfect love will come. When I acknowledge my sins and my transgressions. And so, Father, I, I turn from the things that I know displease you and myself and others. And by faith, I place my life in the hands of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of things that I'm afraid of, and, and I'm handing them over to you. Would you come and win a victory in my life? For those of us who have been Christians for a long time, maybe you're that elder statesman of faith, there are still things that cause you fear, maybe you're concerned about how the next generation or leadership of church or the direction of our country or who knows what, and you can be confident that it was the Lord who was first concerned and always took matters into his very capable hands and won a victory for us and sent the presence of his spirit. It's an Old Testament promise repeated a lot in the New Testament. That the greatest assurance of faith that we can ever have is not transactional, it's not based on a piece of paper, but it's based on the victory that the Lord has won through Jesus Christ and is evidenced as we experience the power of the Spirit in our lives and in our fellowship. And so I'm going to pray to wrap up our time together this morning. If it would help you to spend some time praying as well, I encourage you to do so. Would you join me as I pray? Holy Father, thank you for your text this morning. Thank you for the words that John wrote and the ideas that we saw from Paul and also from Isaiah. Lord, we pray that as there are things at the beginning of this year that might cause us anxiety, that might cause us fear, that we would experience a fresh indwelling of your Holy Spirit so that our fear may be conquered by love. Father, we pray that in 2020 our relationship with you would be strengthened. Lord, this year, as a church, we are going to be making memories which will strengthen not just our faith, but the faith of those for generations to come when we see you do something powerful by providing us a permanent home right in the heart of Jerusalem. Father, may we kind of dig deep in that future memory even now to overcome our concerns about that construction process, about the money and the timeline and what needs to happen to make that happen. Father, may you remind us that you went to war on our behalf not to provide us a nice place to meet, but to have saved people to meet with. And so, Father, we pray for the power of your gospel before we build, while we build, after we move in, and for the years to come. That the building wouldn't be indwelled by the power of your Holy Spirit, but the people would be. We ask these things in